Dr. Stuart Cosgrove, you turn 70 next November. Are you, Excellent. Are you scared? So you're not scared of that? Not at all. No, okay. no, 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 no. I've always been someone that's been fairly kind of upfront about my age. It's difficult. I don't even know what the purpose of lying about your age is or trying to kind of disguise your age. No, nor do I. I was born in 1952, so do the arithmetic. It's coming up to the big seven zero, and I'm lucky in as much as I told the story about losing my glasses when we beat Hamburg in the UEFA Cup. Uh, and I saw that, and it was the week before I went to university. And if I wasn't the age I was, I wouldn't have been at that game as a teenager. Uh, and now I go to the games, and I can see the grandsons and the nephews and that. We've got Fair City Uni- Unity, our ultras group. And when I see them going to the games with their TIFOs and all the rest of it, there's a very big jealous side of me, which is I was still 19 and living in Perth. Well, you can be. Well, you were 19 and you were living in Hull. My mum was born in Cottingham. So... Wow, that's where I was living. I'm half Yorkshire and I... Hull is a very small city and so uh, mum was born on Beverly Road, which is the big long road that goes in and out of Hull. It, It is indeed. And Cottingham was exactly where I lived in my first year. The halls of residence for Hull University, one was called Needler Hall, and that was uh, born in Cottingham near Beverly Road. Oh. So I might even have passed your mother unknowingly in the street. That, which, which baffles me. And mum, unfortunately, uh, was dragged to Middlesex as a 10-year-old. So my uncle and, and mum grew up in Stanmore, and which meant that I'd never been to Hull. I thought about going for the year of culture. Did you manage to get there? Uh, yes, I did. Um, one of the difficult things about Hull is that you don't go to anywhere through Hull. Mm. I mean, it's literally uh, on the uh, far east coast of England. You can get to the Hook of Holland from Hull, but you don't go to other English cities. So when you're going to Hull, you're going because you're going to Hull. And it's not like York, where you might pass through on the way to Edinburgh or something. Um, So it's always been one of these perceived as being slightly out of the way. But here's a Scottish football connection for you staying with Cottingham. And we we made a lot of hay of this on Off the Ball. Uh, Suddenly, out of nowhere, Aberdeen signed the striker Sam Cosgrove. Now, Sam Cosgrove has no relation to me, but he was the only Cosgrove then playing in the Scottish leagues uh, (laughs) at the time. I think he's subsequently gone down to Birmingham or whatever, but he's a striker. And he was born in Cottingham. So I kind of used to then float the possibility that he was my illegitimate (laughs) child. (laughs) And that hung about for a bit in the kind of Aberdeen uh, supporters' boards and things like that. Alas, there is no known connection. Do you know what that sounds like? That sounds like one of those things Stuart McConey makes up for the NME. It's the Bob Holness playing on Baker Street rumour. God, I'd love to get into all of that, but we only have an hour. We're going to have to do it again. In fact, next year I'm doing this thing called the Music Library, which is where I'd love to talk to you about Detroit 67, Memphis 68, Harlem 69, the Soul Trilogy, and indeed the Soul Tetralogy... Because, hey, America, black music in the White House. This is going to be book of the year. Do you realise what you're going to do with this book? This is A, timely, and B, probably well written. So this is going to be a really important book. Well, I certainly hope so. We've had huge interest in it already. Because it's only, I'm literally going through it uh, page by page now, you know, checking, fact-checking and things like that. And it's... um, 
it is quite a substantial book, but I've already got quite a lot of interest from TV companies. Uh, my last book, Cassius X, is being made in a film just now in America, and I think a lot of people saw Hey America as feeling just right for maybe a three-part, four-part documentary series or you know something like that. So there's been a lot of kind of interest in it. Yeah. We've not agreed a deal on the rights yet, but we probably will in the new year. It's an exciting book. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, what it does is it follows the evolution and development of African-American popular music from soul music in the 60s up to where we are now. Uh, and it follows the presidential uh, developments through Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, Jimmy Carter, Reagan, uh, and all the way up to Obama yeah, and and of course Trump. So it's a very, very volatile book in places, <laughs> but nonetheless um, quite interesting. You're close to Park Heath than to Ibrox? It's uh, by, yeah, by a good few miles. I'm in the east end of the city. Ooh, yeah, yeah the green bit. Um, but you are neutral. You're Switzerland in, in this story. Um, and so even though music is the passion, and we haven't even begun to talk about um, the Perth City Soul Club, but there are places you can go, I'm sure, to read recollections of your northern rare soul um, story. Yeah, mostly now online. I mean, yeah. the fanzine movement I was part of in the 70s has kind of tended to gravitate online yeah. now in forums and things like that. So I'm kind of well-known uh, by most of the most of the people in those forums. And I've still got, I've maintained a commitment to buying vinyl. So I've got a very, very good record collection, which I've managed to kind of keep as, as smart as I can. It's not the biggest collection in the world, but it's very, very, uh, it's very well chosen, I think. Let's and put it that way. Because and I'm sure Jack, little Jack, is going to have custody of those records in the will. Well, he, he, he's got to shape up because currently there's a, a double padlock on the door where they're kept. And I don't trust him yet because he, st- he thinks they're like frisbees. Oh, and, no. you know, he likes throwing them around and I'm like, no, 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 no. So I, um, I've decided that you won't be able to see them until he's about 14 and he's learned more of the kind of behaviours of um, uh, of how to treat vinyl with respect. Absolutely. The book is Young Soul Rebels, by the way, yeah. uh, which is your, your memoir. And Northern Soul is... Um, it's called Northern Soul because in the north of England, places like Wigan or places near where you lived, you lived in Rochdale and Oldham. Did you ever see Lisa Stansfield hanging around Rochdale? She came just after I'd left, maybe mm-hmm. a couple of years after I'd left, but she was certainly influenced by if you like, the up-tempo soul oh, sound definitely. Uh, of, yeah. uh, of what was played. Rochdale Tiffany's was one of the big clubs of the time. It wasn't an all-nighter like Wigan Casino or uh, the Torch and Stoke-on-Trent, but it was certainly a well, well-loved club, Rochdale Tiffany's, and she was a regular there. Well, Lisa Stansfield was marketed as an R&B artist in America. I think she topped the R&B yeah. charts, which, was, yeah. which is what the, then the black charts were known as. Um, yeah. Yes, but these... Now, these... Wait, 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 wait. You can't just move on seamlessly there. The first ever white group to go to number one in the black American charts was Perth and Dundee's Average White Band. Of course, right? yeah. Now, probably the best musician amongst them, Alan Gorey, who's a St. Johnson fan, he went to number one in the black American charts and 
James Brown, the legendary godfather, brought out an answer record called Pick Up the Pieces One by One by the Above Average Black Band. <laughs> Genius. And if you, yeah. if you watch uh, an interview with Cy Ferry, you'll be able to hear Stuart's account of why James Brown is a numpty. Um, right. To put it politely. You realise, I think, that about Cy Ferry as well, don't you? No, uh, no I don't. Um, uh, we always have a wee laugh, Cy and Paul Slane, who does his show. Uh-huh. Uh, we have this kind of technique where sometimes out of the kind of um, ether of what we're talking about, I'll throw in an intellectual concept and uh, or, or some kind of long, convoluted word. And then jokingly at the end of it, we'll say, I wonder if Cy Ferry knows what that means. Oh, but what we're doing, nice. we're playing on the old, the old idea that footballers are not the most gifted when it comes to intellectual thought. They've done a great, great job, actually. Cy's just done a big show at the SECC at the wow. Exhibition Centre. Wow. Huge, huge audiences. I mean, it's incredible, you know. No, I mean, obviously. it's not it, but, but a huge audience, you know. Yeah, this long interview, which talks about the origins of Off the Ball, uh, you say that Tam is the Lanarkshire lard uh, and you yeah. are the Perth... Can't say this word anymore, but I, you know what "puff" means in the sense yeah. of yeah. over-intellectual. So what you've done, you've created this double act which has endured. But I didn't realise the origins of Off the Ball was because you and Tam were the only ones of a pan- the regular panel initially who actually went to football matches. How on earth would a show be commissioned with people who don't go to football matches? Lovely though Sanjeev Kohli is, naturally. Well, I think that one of the motivations there was... It was, if you remember, the height of the kind of fanzine movement, and it broadly coincided also with what they were uh, at the time was called Zoo Radio, where you had kind of the radio studio full of kind of zany characters and everything. And both Greg and uh, Sanjeev, who were two of the original cast, were well known on the kind of Scottish alternative comedy scene. Mm -hmm. So I think that the motivation was less to do with are they big football fans? Uh, and it was army funny people, you know, and that's what led to, to the casting. And it was a bit of a chaotic first uh, year. And I was brought in really to kind of, to begin with, to analyse where it wasn't working. And it wasn't working in part because you didn't always know who was speaking. You couldn't always sense what relationship the central characters had with each other. There were five of them. Uh, and so I proposed stripping it right back to a double act. And at that time the person that I thought was A, the funniest, and B, the one that knew the most about football was Tam Cowan, who's a Motherwell fan, a season ticket holder, and a very, very witty and funny guy. And that then meant that when it whittled down to two, it was clearly classic double act, you know, Eric and Ernie, and it needed me as the straight guy setting him up, but it also needed a point of difference for us. And whilst we're both from fairly kind of working-class and ordinary backgrounds, because I'd been to university and done all the postgraduate degrees, it made much, much more sense um, for me to be playing uh, the kind of smart-ass, if you like. But the the closest to it, uh, in terms of great double acts, is probably Steptoe and Son. There are (laughs) scenes in Steptoe and Son where the uh, where the, the, the young uh, Harold Steptoe is aspiring to go to the opera. He wants to listen to classical music in the junkyard. He wants to escape, really, from this life of kind of... Yeah. A 
and meanwhile his dad is eating pickled onions in the bath you know and and it, 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 it tams the tams eating pickled onions in the bath and i'm aspiring to go to the opera so it's kind of set to one son Scottish football rather than a junkyard. I'll bear that in mind next time I listen, and I will listen. I know you pre-recorded the New Year's special, so I'll listen to that. Um, Can you tell me who guests are lined up for this weekend? So if this goes out on the Friday, who have you got this weekend? We tend to book guests relatively late in the week, unless there's a really good reason for it. So we'll still be talking to people, and the producer will still be talking to people now, but we've had a run of guests that have just been sensational. And sometimes it's quite difficult to know what a great guest will be like. But the ones that have been um, guests most recently, uh, a young man who's a Rangers fan uh, and won the uh, Nobel uh, Prize for Science. And he was um, to do, he, he, won it, he won the Nobel Prize with a piece of work that was about how viruses replicate. So I think it was a lot to do with the context of covid and yep. he's at harvard uh, a big rangers fan big scotland fan and to have a nobel prize winner that knows about his football he was a guest um about six weeks ago and then last week probably our most popular guest in a very very long time was a gentleman called doug allen who's a scottish cameraman who's um the the cameraman for kind of blue planet and all the wow. uh, david yeah. attenborough shows and, you know, just simply having him talking about um, his work and his relationship with Attenborough whilst also playing the clown for us was, was wonderful. Um, so we've had really good guests. Good guests don't necessarily mean big guests, you know, household names or anything like that, because what you're really looking for them to do is to bring something more than merely the fact that they support a football team. They have to have hinterland, if you like. Indeed, and, and that's... That is what Pat Nevin, Pat Hinterland Nevin, that is, that should be his middle name because what his book, The Accidental Footballer, shows, and you know the story, and you probably know the ones that he hasn't talked about in the first book because he's having them legaled to make sure he doesn't get sued. But yeah, the importance of the hinterland in any broadcasting and in any sense, and a lot of the complaints about the modern day footballer is that they're athletes with very little outside it. So that when you get someone like Stuart Pearce, who's a rock and roller, suddenly yeah. it becomes interesting. What hinterland does Scott Brune have? What's his hinterland? Well, I think one of his hinterlands, funnily enough, he actually uh, caught us out with this. I, I, two things, two things. One, uh, one more comedic and one more serious. Yeah. Scott Brown is one of the great um, gamesmen uh, of modern Scottish football. He gets inside people's heads. Which you mentioned now, on the show on Sunday, which I wanted yeah, to bring We were up, yeah. in Aberdeen um, uh, at the weekend, and our young Finnish under-21 international, day two, Vertinen, came on, and Scott Brown just targeted him. And within about five minutes, Vertinen was wanting to fight Scott Brown, and he completely, his mind was off the game, and he had been distracted away from what he was on there to do. And, and Scott Brown's a past master at noising people up and getting in the, getting into the head of, of the opposition. But one of the things about Scott Brown that I... I have huge respect for him for two stories that both uh, relate to women in his life, one of whom was his, uh, his sister, who died very, very young of cancer. Um, and she died, I think, in about 23, 4-year-old. Um, and, and Scott... Uh, carried that story 
with him for a period of time and then had to go public about it around the period of her death. And it gave him a kind of emotional depth of character that you wouldn't necessarily associate with just the passing footballer. There was something about him that came alive during that period. But he had also told a story, and I think it's a very illuminating story, about the nature of um, football now, not just in Scotland. This, and basically, uh, Scott Brown paid homage to his mother. He, she was separated from his father. And she drove every night. I mean, he talked me through the, the type of work he was doing. He's from Hill of Beef in Fife. And um, he would have to travel to Hibernian, where he was in the Hibernian Development Academy. And then he would play for his local team at the weekend back in Fife. And she had a schedule of driving him 50, 60 miles uh, to different parts of Scotland for tournaments, for training, for trials, for the Scotland um, uh, development squad. And he, he just said to me it would have been impossible to do it without his mother, a single mother. And he, he thought she was the most kind of significant woman in his life in the world. And it, it kind of chimed with something that the aforementioned David Witherspoon said as well, that he felt that he doubted that you could play football at an academy level now without having two cars because the stress on you training and travelling and that is too great. And that's a fundamental shift from the football I grew up with, which is highly localised, where you had the, the, the kind of minibus and your school teacher would drive you to play games. It's just completely changed. And, you know, the academy system, there's no question that it develops players, but whether it leaves an awful lot of people uh, rootless and no longer in, in love with the game, I think there needs to be a huge review of the elite academy system because it delivers but it also takes away. Ooh, I'll look into that. And obviously, very different at the end of the 19th century when your ancestors set up Erin Rovers, a Perth-based yeah. team of Galway immigrants from Ireland. Who, And you say, you talk about this with Danny Gray, so I'm not going to duplicate it, but you say that within two generations, they were naturalised Scots. So by the time you came along, yes, Irish yeah. heritage, but Scots through and through. And again, I'd love to ask about Indie Ref too, but I don't want to lose 48% of the audience or whatever. If you were to write, and I don't know if you've been... Uh, approach to write one, an off-the-ball book to accompany the, oh, I presume, award-winning series, what would be the main themes that have undercut the last 20 years of broadcasting? Well, one, one of the things really is, is kind of a passion for minutiae. Let me give you a very simple off-the-ball trope that returns up, and it's why do Aloe Athletic fans hate Hitler, right? So here's the story. In the very, very last months of 1939, as the season was winding down as the World War II was breaking out, Allo Athletic were top of the league. They were way ahead of any other team and they'd won the league comfortably. During the period of 1939 to 1945, uh, and they returned to league football, the League Association in Scotland restructured the league and through restructuring, Aloha were never promoted. So, if you take it from that point of view, Adolf Hitler ruined Aloha's season, right? So, um, we love all of those kind of daft little kind of things about why um, clubs are the way they are, 
who plays where, what's going on with them. And you can kind of have lots and lots and lots of fun with football and bring up kind of knowledge. Um, one of the things that we do every week is we have a team of the week. And the team of the week could be something like, well, this week you would maybe have the Boris Johnson Party 11 and you'd be looking for names that somehow could appear in that team. And there are a number of players that keep returning. I think it's maybe because their surnames are so redolent of different things. Like there's a great um, player from Scotland in the 50s called Tommy Ring, uh, the late uh, Bertie Auld, who passed away yeah. last week, um, and an Aberdeen legend, Doogie Bell. And they seem to appear in hundreds of teams. So Doogie Bell, for example, would be in the primary school 11, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and people seem to love that, the kind of um, everyday conversational fun of the show. The show's quite uh, uh, generous of its intent. It can be cynical. Of course, we're football fans and we want to get into the National Association, Rangers and Celtic and their various different um, conceits. Uh, so we love having a go at all of that. But it's a hugely popular show. And also, you mentioned earlier, you know, my Irish ancestry. That's not uncommon in Scotland. I mean, probably very common. Um, but uh, language is important too because Tam and I both have um, Scots language that we use literally daily. That's our conversational language. So the show, unlike most BBC shows, is not in standard English. It's in conversational Scots often. Yeah. And whilst uh, an English person will be able to understand most of that, some of it will kind of uh, baffle them. Uh, nonetheless, it kind of appeals hugely to the Scottish audience. And, also, and it should to the English audience. It's just a shame that Soccer Saturday seems to have become, uh, in England, the warm-up act for Saturday yeah. at 3pm. Just to say that when you had Doug Allen in... The um, the podcast description is Ukraine, favourite TV animals, frosty receptions and iconic Scottish football images. Scottish football, and I, I went to Rugby Park when my brother had his aforementioned 30th. We were very lucky and Kilmarnock were at home. It was the most dire game. Um, Stevie Clark had left Kilmarnock and Kilmarnock were trying to pass the ball into the goal. You would never believe they won 1-0 from a header from a corner. It was... Yeah, Exactly. Um, I'm sure St Johnston and Callum Davidson's teams do a lot better than that. The Scottish League Cup final, it is this weekend coming. Yeah, it is. And uh, disappointingly, we're not in it. We're beating the semi-final by Celtic yeah. very narrowly. Hibernian are the other team, Celtic versus Hibs. And Hibs are the team that we beat in both the final and the semi-final of our double cup winning team. So we were talking this week about... If there's an outbreak of COVID at Celtic Park, the VAFs ask St. Johnson to go and represent them in the final. Absolutely. But does that mean that on Sunday, what time's kickoff? Oh, I don't know. That's all to do with... Is it uh, after you? It, yeah, it will be after us. Yeah, it's Premier Sports uh, that will be broadcast that and Lord knows what their schedule will determine. It's one of the frustrating things about football. You never know when games are on, you know. Well, apparently you're due to be on at noon on Sunday. Sports Sound is on after you. Um, yeah. BBC Radio Scotland has Ricky Ross as one of the top music presenters. He's a football fan of some repute. Have you had him in? Yeah, oh, frequently. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he's a good friend and uh, a really, really lovely man. He's actually a big Dundee United fan. He grew up in Dundee before he moved to Glasgow. 
Um, and although the Deacon Blue are now maybe more associated as being a Glasgow band, he himself was Dundee United, briefly an English teacher in, in Dundee before he moved uh, to, to Glasgow. But a big, what they call in the trade, a big, big Arab, right? Uh, Dundee United fans for oh, those yes. people that are not from Scotland are nicknamed the Arabs. So that, that's, um, I haven't had him into the football library yet, but he's, he's, again, his broadcasting style is warm and enveloping. Uh, yeah. and I love listening to him. He's got a Ricky Ross Meets series that I'm working through. Has he yeah, spoken uh, to any um, soul acts on his show? The kinds that you, because again, you've documented this elsewhere, but you've spoken to Prince and Marvin Gaye and James Brown. You yeah. must out-anecdote even Ricky Ross. Yeah, well, he, I don't know, because Ricky, of course, has toured the world with his band, and he will have opened for uh, numerous people that I, 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 I've never met or uh, maybe in some cases don't even really know. Uh, but I, I'm sure I'm sure that he's interviewed um, soul legends. I think he may even have interviewed Aretha Franklin before she passed away, but I'm sure he's interviewed Chaka Khan and uh, other people like that. I would need to check that. He, he, he'll know the... Uh, the list better than I ever would. Yeah, indeed. Uh, he was, The anecdotes that I could have got out of you, I actually wrote down. Um, Stuart Cosgrove was in charge of Channel 4's entertainment output. Ask him for one anecdote. But I probably, just because I went to the London Stadium, I just want to congratulate yeah, for your part of the Paralympic coverage. Perhaps, yeah. perhaps it could be your greatest event because it really did, along with what Adam Hills was doing, change the conversation. And if one in yeah. five people in Britain are disabled, why don't we see them? Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I would say that if I was writing a kind of more formal CV, that would be uh, certainly my, my, my biggest professional achievement. And the last leg, which Adam, of course, stars in, was part of the kind of... We, we, we set the Paralympics up always as a mini channel, so we knew we were going to live during the day we knew that there would be events in the evening, we knew there'd be a highlights package, and then towards the end, at 11 o'clock, we needed an alternative classic kind of Channel 4 show, The Last Leg. You know, I'm hugely proud of the transformative role they played in raising awareness of just Paralympic sport in general, but disability more uh, more widely. feel very good about being congratulated for that. Mm. Won uh, numerous awards. But if you're looking for... Um, a kind of wee sort of uh, entertainment put down. I remember that we had a... You remember there was a a major incident in which a Manchester group, the Stone Roses, um, Happy Mondays rather, swore live on air and it was a big controversy at the time um, and the board of Channel 4 got involved and it was down to me to bring in the production team, including Chris Evans, to effectively put them on notice and, and, and give them a warning. And they were all sitting in my room. It's got a big room with a table and there's about six, seven people in the room. And I looked down and Chris Evans, who was a big friend of Gaza and Ali McCoist, was wearing a pair of Ranger socks. And I said to him, Chris, I'm sorry, I, I, I can't complete the meeting with you wearing them. Could you take them off, please? And he went outside, to be fair. He took the ranger's socks off and he came back in his bare feet and we uh, conducted the meeting. Um, it was just one of those things where, look, you're in, 
you're in London, you're a St. Johnson fan, you're not going to take a meeting with a guy wearing a pair of Rangers songs, no. come on. Even if it is Chris Evans, who, um, by his <laughs> own admission, is a genius. One, one of the things I would say about Chris Evans, we did uh, the pilot show of um, TFI Friday, and the bands were on this big, big stage, and originally, uh, there's still a pilot show somewhere around that shows you this, he's on stage uh, interviewing... Uh, one of his guests, and it was a disaster. And he brought it in, and we sat and we looked at it, and he said to me, I'm going to show you a shot, Stuart, and I think this shot will crack the show. And it was basically a, sh- an, a shot overlooking the bar upstairs where eventually all the interviews took place. Mm-hmm. And he said, we're going to set up a table there, and we're going to do the interviews in that bar and only nod to the uh, the big stage where the bands are. And in that transformation, he turned the show into a failing pilot, into what was one of Channel 4's most successful shows. He's an extremely talented producer, let alone uh, presenter, and respect respect to him for that. Indeed, and he is the combination of Timmy Mallet and Danny Baker. Yeah, uh, one of the things I liked about him is that he was always quite cute at finding a clever way to tell a story. You'll remember that... Um, there was that big pop song, uh, Tell You What I Want, What I Really, Really Want. You know that one? So I hear, and, yes. uh, I remember that he got one of the most famous kind of plummy actors in the history of English uh, theatre to literally read the words out uh, as Potter. I'll tell you what I want, what I really, <laughs> really want. And it was just fantastically funny little kind of spin on what was already a pop cultural moment. Uh, he was just really good at that. There was one, you barely tell this now when you think about Manchester City and where they are now. Yeah. But at the time during TFI Friday, they were in danger of uh, being relegated from the English top league. And he brought some of these players, and I can't even remember who they were now, but they were Man City uh, first team players. And it was in this kind of lift system within an office. The door opens and the Man City guys are in the room, and Chris in the lift, rather, and Chris Evans just said to them, going down, and one of them said, looks like it, and the lift just went down. And it was just a little magic moment. I mean, it's no more than 30 seconds, but you had to know they were the Man City squad or it wouldn't have worked, you know? Still, still relevant after 25 years. He now is on breakfast on Virgin Radio, um, yeah. probably while you're taking Jack to school. The rest of your year and the beginning of next year is going to be um, Hey America. And then is there a project after that? Yeah, there's, there's actually quite a few projects because um, all of my books now have been bought by various different uh, producers, uh, production companies, uh, and most of them are working with American streaming companies, notably Netflix or uh, Disney Plus or uh, oh, sorry, Apple Plus. And as a consequence of that, there's quite a lot of things for me to do there uh, either to kind of approve scripts or to get involved or uh, to meet up with, with talent that's attached to writers' rooms and things like that. So that's going to be a, a busy uh, part of the year as well. Uh, and, of course, um, I've always got my own books that I want to kind of continue writing. So I'm just finishing Hey America. That will be done by um, the February next year. Uh, and I've also written the introduction to a new book, which is coming out across 110th Street, which is uh, based on the, the Bobby, Bobby Womack 
currently juggling. Uh, I've got two ideas, and I'm juggling which I want to do in what order, and I'll come up with them probably by the spring of next year, start working on them. So quite a busy old time ahead of us. Absolutely. Rust Rust never sleeps. I don't know if that's the right... Rust never sleeps, yes, you're never right. Sleeps. Um, I didn't even ask you about this book that you wrote with Raphael Samuel and Ewan McColl. I hope I can find something there. But you are Dr. Stuart Cosgrove. And if I had a whole day with you, uh, we could put the world to rights and then some. Off the Ball is at noon on Saturdays and Sundays. There's a paper review on Sundays and a, a preview on Saturdays. Petty and ill-informed and long may it continue to be so one more question i'm going to give you your football library membership card which saint do you want upon it as a as a kind of silhouetted figure upon your library card oh my that's the toughest question you've asked me uh, because it, it kind of means i'd be tempted to mention david witherspoon but we've talked about him so i'll take someone uh from a from a different uh, from a different era, I would like to put on it the great St. Johnson sweeper and creative defender Sergei Baltacha, who is a Ukrainian, uh, played for Dynamo Kiev. In fact, uh, was I think the captain of Dynamo Kiev when they won the UEFA Cup uh, in the aftermath of the Chernobyl um, nuclear fallout, and he's a big big kind of character in Ukrainian football. When, when he arrived at Perth, and he, he lived near my uncle, and it was just amazing being able to go into supermarkets and see Sergei. And there was something about him. He was a, he, because of the Soviet Union uh, still existed at the time, he was a, a, a graduate of the uh, Red Army uh, elite sporting kind of units. And so he, he came from that kind of old Soviet culture uh, to Perth. And when he arrived, it was literally in the in the ladder with a few things in the back of his car. Um, and he was a, a great, great player for us, but also the indication of people that find a new life because his daughter, Elena Baltacha, of course, became probably uh, Britain's most famous female uh, tennis star of the, the last 20, 30 years. Uh, although she died, sadly, very early in her life, she'd achieved as much as um, she could as a tennis player. His uh, own son, Sergei Jr., played for Scotland and, and St. Mirren and was a very, very big uh, local footballer in the Perth area. And his wife, who he's now, I think, separated from, was a, a Soviet heptathlete. So they were a phenomenal uh, sporting family. But Sergei was one of the ones that played the beautiful game. And I would love to see his image uh, wearing his USSR cap. I think he played for USSR and CIS uh, and then ultimately maybe even for Ukraine when they became independent. So, um, Sergei, I'd, I'd, I'd go with him. That's we've got a young guy. We've got a young guy called um, Maxim Kurashevsky who has come over from Ukraine from the Dynamo Kiev Academy and he's one of the top rising stars of St. Johnson. So that kind of uh, gives me an extra boost that we need a Ukrainian front cover. That's fantastic. I'm just having a look. Oh, Celtic at home on Boxing Day. You go into that one? Yes, I'll be looking there for us to get the wee present of three points. Oh, good luck. Uh, Merry Christmas, yeah. Happy New Year. Thank you very much, Johnny, and all the best to you and uh, your loved ones and uh, to your wonderful mother from Cottingham. Yes,